What is happening, everybody? Welcome to Off the Rails, a recovery podcast dedicated to ending the stigma of addiction through open discussion on all things recovery related. My name is Mark, and with me always is Dave. And uh, Dave's going to introduce our next guest for us. Yeah, we couldn't be more excited to have our next guest on. He's a California certified substance abuse counselor, founder of Writers in Treatment, uh, director of The Real Recovery Film Festival and Symposium, uh, editor, publisher of the weekly addiction recovery e-bulletin, author of the book Hi, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict, and he's also 27 years sober. We got uh, Leonard Lee Bushel on with us. Hi, guys. Hi, Leonard. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for the invitation. My, my pleasure so far. <laughs> so Leonard, what we do most times, uh, we get our guests on and we kind of get them to share their stories through active addiction and, and recovery. And uh, your case is a bit, a bit different because, you know, that story is available in your book, right? Yes. So um, basically, could you introduce yourself and kind of tell us a bit about, you know, your using history and then your 27 years of sobriety? Well, if there's time, why don't I just read the book out loud? I need an audio version. Perfect. Maybe we could we could do it right now. Uh, Leonard Bouchel, born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, lovely home, nice neighborhood, uh, close-knit family. But when I was three, weeks old, my father died. And looking back and having written the book, it, 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 it must have had some, uh, some massive effect on me as a young boy. You know, I have two sons, and when they were three weeks old, I imagined, oh God, if I disappeared now, if I died, how different would their life be without me? Uh, and so that was that was who I am. I didn't have uh, a father growing up. I had a terrific mother, hardworking, interesting, and and I, I'm not going to say she did the best she could. She did better than she could. Uh, she was grief stricken when when my father passed away. She had a three year old son, my brother and me, and then suddenly the provider and the father and the husband was gone. Uh, I'm sure she went into some deep grief and a, and a state of shock, uh, but eventually came out of it and had to get a job and worked uh, every day. So I you know, had a lot of freedom growing up because when I got home from school, no one was there. And so I had the house to myself and uh, it was uh, it was interesting. I was I was overprotected but under supervised, which I enjoyed because after school I could I you know I enjoyed setting fires, stealing. Uh, I had a twenty two rifle that I would use in my you know out the window. Uh, you know I guess they call it acting out now. But to me, it was just keeping busy and keeping involved in something. I don't know if that answered your question because I forgot what it was. 
yeah, yeah, that was good. Um, I don't know how far you want me to get into high school where I started dealing marijuana. Or you want absolutely. To say in the in the mid range when I was a compulsive gambler at fourteen years old. Ooh. When I was in middle school, friends would come to the to the school at, at lunch and say, "Hey, we're going to the racetrack," and I would just walk out of school. I would just leave at lunch and go with them because being in a racetrack, betting on beautiful horses was a lot more interesting than whatever they were trying to teach me in junior high. Uh, and that was, uh, but luckily, I was able to beat my compulsive gambling addiction when I started dealing pot because I realized that I could take $100 to the racetrack and probably lose. I wasn't a very, I enjoyed it and I was good at it, but I didn't win a lot. And I thought I could take $100 to the racetrack and lose, or I could buy $100 worth of pot and end up with $125 and a little pot. And I thought, well, that makes sense. Why would I go blow my stake, as it were, at a racetrack? So that it, uh, it cured me, the, the, the dealing. Because that, that's, you know, I hear more people commit suicide over compulsive gambling than they do over other uh, behavioral infractions. So I'm glad that didn't happen to me. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Did um, Was there any point when you were gambling and you kind of, you recognized that it could have been a problem for you? Every time I left a racetrack, completely broke. <laughs> Or the first time I went to Las Vegas and had to call my mother on the phone and say, hey, you got to wire me money to fly home because I lost everything I had. Uh, and, I, and I thought that happened to everybody who went to Vegas for the first time. The only way I can win in Las Vegas is if I'm ahead and I have a flight to catch you know, and some responsibilities to attend to. But as long as they're open... And I have money. It's just, it's a high, you know. It, it's 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 adrenaline and it's all those lovely things. And any problems you might have had are gone while you're while you're gambling. And there's nothing more eloquent in my past. I don't do it much anymore, if at all. But betting a hundred dollars on a horse to win from the time that trumpet plays and that bell rings and that gate opens and they start running you know for that minute and 34 seconds you're not thinking of work you're not thinking of girls you're not thinking of your of sex you're not thinking of death you're just watching that the colors on the on the on the you know on the jockey's jersey that's all your focus it's a really precise form of perverted meditation but I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. I haven't been to a racetrack in like a few years. I have, I, I'm embarrassed to admit, but I think I might have changed. I might not be that person that I was. It takes a while to, to realize that because in early stages of recovery, or you know, I think people do go through identity crisis. You know, am, I, am I that person that I embraced so completely, or am I this newer person who doesn't gamble every day or ever uh, or 
you know, only steals from hotel chains, little, you know, white washcloths, but doesn't steal any from anywhere else. Uh, you know, who, who am I? And I guess that's where the more will be revealed comes in. And all of your writing assignments. Did you two meet in rehab? We, we did, yes. We actually pulled in uh, at the exact same time. So, but Mark's got a, Mark has a month on me because he was at another facility for a bit first. But um, yeah, we did. I literally backed in to a rehab, physically, metaphorically. <laughs> uh, like I wasn't going there to get clean and sober. I was just going to take a break because I thought I was going to get arrested and I was having a nervous breakdown. But my intention was not to quit using my lifeline. I mean, you got so many great stories. You know, what was the motivation now? You talk about, you know, identity, going through identity, first little bit of your recovery. I mean, I think books have been a big part of your life all growing up. You could have written a book, you know, of your past in two years of sobriety. But what was the motivation now, I guess? The motivation to have to written a book or the motivation to stay alive? <laughs> to both, well, to, to, to do it now versus, let's say, or is it always something you thought about doing? It just wasn't, didn't feel complete until, until now as far as writing the book. Well, you know, the, the genesis is very interesting about uh, when I was still using, I was living with the, you know, the, uh, the femme fatale of my life, my, 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 the one who, anyway, I was very involved in a passionate relationship. But I had a feeling that there was something tragically wrong. And, and I was suffering, for lack of a more eloquent word. And at the end of the day, I would go down to this big tavern up in... Marin County, uh, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge near San Francisco. And to, to keep myself sane, you know, I wasn't sober at the time, to keep myself sane, and I could recommend this to anybody under many situations, I would take a notebook to the bar, I'd get a Heineken, it was happy hour, it was only a dollar, and I would nurse the Heineken, because I wasn't like a classic alcoholic. I could just have two and go home and smoke pot and do coke. But for, for like two hours, I would sit down and write. I would remember all the things that happened in my life that were positive. You know, what I called magical moments. And I would have to write them down just to balance out the miserableness I was feeling in my life at the time, like I had to remember who I had been. You know, I wasn't always this, this uh, tragic figure, so to speak. So I would, you know, every day I'd write a few and it would perk me up, it would pick me up, it would remind me of who I was, who, who I could be, who I should be. And I did that <laughs> uh, for, a few, for a few months. So then I ended up with like a hundred of these moments that I treasured in my life. You know, absolutely treasured everything from uh, a vacation with my mother and brother on a train to Florida when I was young. You know, that was like a very pleasant memory. 
to the memory of cutting my son's umbilical cord when 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 we when we had him, uh, and so I accumulated a number of incidences like that, incidents or occasions. Cut to going back to college to get my certification as a substance abuse counselor. We worked with a book called uh, Did I Have a Choice? Uh, also about childhood, like the, the decisions that you made, the choices that you made when you were 10 or 15, were they your choices or were they choices your family programmed into you or society? or your religion, uh, you know, who was influencing you to do what then. So that, re that uh, produced a lot of interesting essays about, about growing up and why, why I did the things I did and why I made the choices that I made. And, and so I had a lot of notes. I had a lot of notes, self-reflective notes. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, now is the time to get this to get my get this autobiography written. You know, initially, and I tell anybody out there, think of it as a memoir, like oh, reminiscences of a particular era in your life. You know, but I start with me being born, you know, so it's more autobiographical, going through. You know, the tragedy at three weeks old and, and school and having very serious asthma and ending up in the hospital and, you know, crappy crap. Uh, and, but then little by little, I said, like I said, I said, if I can't get this done during a lockdown pandemic, because it was very serious in Los Angeles, it's amazing what's going on now. It looks like it's sort of, fading away. I know in Canada you never even had a pandemic, right? Because you're so smart and clean and well, we're organized. Still, and we're still going through it. It's not trying to kill you like the one <laughs> we had, right? Oh, we're, yeah, we're still, going, right. we're still <laughs> going through it. <laughs> okay. hmm. um, so, so that's what got me really to, 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 to work on it uh, on a regular basis. Uh, you know, for the last two years, basically. Uh, and I'm very proud of how it came out. It blows my mind uh, when I start to read through it. I'm doing a, an in-person reading on Wednesday, and I thought I'd better figure out what I'm going to read. And then I had the idea of handing out a, a piece of paper to everybody there, maybe only 20 people, with the chapter titles and ask them to pick out a chapter that they want me to read from. Sort of like, you know, even though I'm a bit of a, I won't say control freak, but I like to uh, have everything planned out ahead of time. Um, but I thought if I give them all the chapter titles and let them pick out the chapters, it'll be more spontaneous, it'll be more da-da, if, if you will. And, uh, and so that's what I'm thinking of doing. So maybe at some point you'll ask me to read the chapter titles so it will uh, show or explain to your listeners just how amazing this book is.
I read it and I thought it was, uh, I thought it was really well written and, and, uh, really funny actually. And I, I started, uh, I told Mark this, I, I, about eight pages in, I kept stopping because I had to write things down on my phone of different, uh, quotes or little stories or anecdotes you would, you had. And eventually I had to stop doing that because I wasn't getting anywhere in the book. Thank but you. Thank you. There was, uh, th- there were some real good ones that I loved and, uh, I shared them with my parents too. I was, I thought they were awesome. So I don't want to ruin what they were. I don't want to tell everyone. They're going to have to read. They're going to have oh, to buy you can it. Tell buy. me because I'll say, oh, God, I don't remember. But, it, you know, when you get into writing, and as I'm sure you guys are doing writing exercises for your steps and your sponsors, and I'm sure they told you don't do it on a computer. you got to do it by hand because when you have a pencil or a pen in your hand and you start writing, you're, it frees your mind to go places that I don't think you would go if you were typing, unless you're a really good typist, which I am not. So I would just scribble out whatever came to mind and sometimes look down and say, wow, you know, that's bullshit or that's really cool. And and I'm glad you picked up on some things. Now, if you want to, if you got some things highlighted, I'd, I'd like to hear it so I can use it at my reading on this coming Wednesday. Well, yeah, like a little short one I liked was uh, I spent my whole life climbing to the top of the, of the mountain. And when I got there, I realized, Oh fuck, wrong mountain. I thought that was, thought that was good. A lot of people could probably relate to that. That that could have been the name of the book, wrong mountain. (laughs) Seriously, it was, it was an idea, but we thought we'd be more, more straightforward. Uh, and even now, I don't think it should be confessions of a cannabis addict. I think it should be confessions of a cannabis lover. Because I don't know if you got to the part where I give my definition of addiction. Yeah. When I, was, when I had done cocaine every day for 13 years. But I will swear I was only a coke addict for one year. And that was the 13th year. Because it was in the 13th year that I would wake up in the morning and say, I'm not doing any lines until after dinner. And then sure enough, after lunch, I'd be chopping and and sniffing. Whereas the first 12 years, every time I did a line or a spoon, I did it because I wanted to. You know, I wanted to do it and I did it. But in the 13th year, I would do it even when I told myself that I didn't want to. So that's when I you know, my definition of addiction is telling yourself you're not going to take something or do something and you, and, and you still end up doing it, no matter what the consequences uh, or the regrets or the shame, you, you have to go do it. It's, 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 it's beyond your control. It's like, it's just, uh, and I guess that's what, why certain, why, why every drug, I guess. It's, it's, it's really being a prisoner to something that you want to be free of, that you enjoyed for a time, whether it's drinking. Were you guys heavy Canadian club, club drinkers or Molson's? <laughs> was that? Yeah, I was addicted to cocaine. Cocaine. Yes. Uh, in, in what form, may I ask? Powder. Powder, yeah, powder, like gunpowder. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah so as a daily user as well yeah similar thing i would try to i would do those like i won't do it till this but it would never it would never last right right and uh you look back and think i'm glad i never met a sexy woman with a needle who liked to shoot it yes <laughs> yeah that would have uh, that would have not been helpful no Absolutely how often not. did you smoke it i didn't smoke it at all but just no comment mm-hmm. i was going to say something inappropriate <laughs> by all means <laughs> no i won't no it's the it's when i first did freebase which was a precursor of crack. It was very yeah. high class crack. Yeah. You know, and, and I did it and I thought, I'd say, I had an assistant at the time. I said, go buy 144 little vials because we're making this shit. Yeah. You know, this is like the new, the new, the new horizon. This is like, uh, uh, and like the next day, having not slept at all, and he brought back the 144, you know, went to a scientific supply store, got the little vials. And, and the next day I said, take them back. I said, this shit's evil. I wouldn't even sell this to Hitler or George Bush. This stuff is really, really uh, something else. Uh, and it does make you feel really good for a little while. Yeah. But, you know, uh, it, it was, it was, uh, that's why they sort of infiltrate, that's why they sort of snuck it into the African-American neighborhoods in L.A. to make sure there were no, you know, no uprisings or people getting ahead in life. So it yeah. sort of decimated that community for a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks to the cia uh, yeah. but hey that's life you know one of my messages in the book is that if i can get sober anybody can get sober because i was i wasn't a drug addict. i lived in the milieu the atmosphere everything i did was involved with alcohol or drugs and drinking and drinking every everything uh it, it just, like I said, it got, I got to the top of the mountain with all that stuff. Yes, wrong mountain. Uh, but when I spent 28 days at a rehab not getting high, I thought, oh, my God, I never even thought this was possible. How can you go 28 days without drinking or using a drug? But the fact that I did it, and I thought, oh, my God, this is a sustainable lifestyle. This way, I'm not going to like get arrested or get drunk and fall down and hit my head on the fireplace and bleed out. I'm not going to overdose on anything. I'm not going to drive drunk. I thought, this sort of makes sense. This is not a bad way, way to live. It's different. And I remember telling my first sponsor, I said, if you start drinking again, I'm going with you because this is a world I'm not familiar with. Yeah, in my book, I think I say what happened to me after two days at a rehab that I only went to because I was having a nervous breakdown. I thought the police were going to arrest me. I suddenly, all desire for drugs disappeared. 
and haven't come back for 27 years. Uh, if that's not, you know, the Japanese have a aphorism that says, at its extreme, everything turns to its opposite. You know, uh, so maybe I was so, you know, maybe I had done all the drugs I should have done in a lifetime, I did in 22 years. And something came and said, okay, that's enough. You don't get no more drugs. You don't get no more alcohol. You're done. Okay? And then that happens. You have Amazon in Canada, don't you? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just got it. Uh, like I said, if you have Amazon Prime and you go on the computer right now, they'll deliver it in about eight or nine minutes. <laughs> the drone service is crazy. Uh, it's worth the two-day wait, I think. I hope. It absolutely is. So what, what, what else are we talking about here? Um, Leonard, you know, in your book, it's clear that you are, uh, you know, you're very passionate about TV and film. Uh, did that passion have anything to do with, you know, starting the real um, recovery film festival? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it was a, a saving grace of mine was having known some fairly interesting guys growing up. And we went to foreign films and I saw that it wasn't just Hollywood Drek. It was like some really interesting films. And it started a nonprofit called Writers in Treatment. I thought, what can we do to raise the profile of this organization? I thought, I, I, you know, Google was still there. It was 14 years ago, 14 years ago. Uh, nobody was doing a film festival with films about addiction and recovery. You know, and at the time there were some Hollywood classics. And the reason it's called Real Recovery is because our first year we had only 35 millimeter films that we showed. Now, theaters don't even show 35 millimeter films. It's all digital, which looks pretty good, but there's nothing better that looks. So the real, so we, first year we showed some classic movies. Uh, you know, I, I often say, Drugs are my, I mean, films are my drugs, is my drug of choice. I literally get uneasy if I'm not in a theater at least every couple weeks. And during the pandemic, that was not easy, but luckily there were some great miniseries on the tube, but it's not the same watching it on this as it is in a theater with other people on a big screen. Um, but I literally get like squirrely or, or spilkies after a couple of weeks if I don't get out of my own head, go sit in the theater and watch something hopefully brilliant and entertaining and funny or serious where you learn things or you feel things. Uh, and great, you want to hear a great movie story? Oh, this is awful. So you know, women don't watch this show, do they? Uh, maybe. I'm not too sure how powerful the film, the medium of film is. I mean, and films can change people, and they do save lives. We had a movie in our film festival called uh, "Behind the Orange Curtain," and it was a documentary about the situation in Orange County, California, where young people were overdosing, like before the trend of this 
awful overdose epidemic. Uh, and they did this investigative reporting of the documentary. And they found that there was a doctor working out of a Starbucks distributing painkillers. And she eventually did get arrested and went to jail. Uh, but what the film exposed was that the, the people dying were not the hippies at the school. Uh, they weren't the, the, you know, the nerds trying to stay up late and study. Uh, it, it wasn't the punks. Uh, it was the athletes. It was the athletes, because if you're a high school athlete, it's only a matter of time before you get an injury. You know, a serious injury, a sprained ankle, shoulder, something. And, they, and the doctors there were all too happy to prescribe your first set of Percodan or Vicodin or Percocets, or I guess eventually Oxycontin. And people would take them and they would feel a euphoria that they hadn't felt at their family dinners, which, because everybody else was on their different device. So they suddenly feel a fairly pleasant, you know, euphoric feeling. And I said, you know, the dope epidemic is a shortage of euphoria or joy or love in America. But so it was the athletes who would get hooked on painkillers. They would get cut off and then they would start scoring on the street, which inevitably leads to fentanyl. And it was a and, and and it was it was powerful, and I think it helps save some lives. It put the one particular doctor in jail. Uh, I told that story to avoid telling the story I was going to tell before, uh, because I have a feeling my business partner would deem it inappropriate, and she doesn't want me to do anything that besmirches the brand of the film festival, my book, or the Addiction Recovery E-Bulletin, okay? The Addiction Recovery E-Bulletin is a weekly e-magazine sent into your inbox every Tuesday morning at 9.05 Pacific time. It's 30 stories from the previous week about addiction and recovery and celebrity addiction and and movie reviews and reviews of that great TV series Dope Sick that was on Hulu. You know, anything to do with this world, for better or worse. And it's also a website, addictionrecoveryebulletin.org. Everything is a .org, and this is realrecoveryfilmfestival.org. Everything is a uh, it's, 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 it's eight and a half years old. Uh, we have 23,000 subscribers. Uh, everybody's really, you know, our open rate is phenomenal. And if you go to the website, addictionrecoveryebulletin.org, I think on the upper right-hand corner is a little subscribe button. So if you subscribe, you'll start getting it this Tuesday or the following Tuesday. If you, if you don't like it after a while, there's a little unsubscribe button um, but I, I think it'll you'll, you'll be educated by it and inspired uh, yeah. and, and when I was working as a drug counselor I remember my second day my supervisor says okay there's 20 guys in the other room now you have to go do a group group some therapy or whatever it's called group 
nice. And I said, where's the book of group topics that someone must have published? And everybody laughed at me. Like, there is no, you got to make it up. You got to do it. So one of the reasons I did this news e-magazine, this e-bulletin, because there are articles in there every week that any drug counselor anywhere can print out, give out to their clients, and have a discussion about it. Science articles, medical articles, uh, like I said, celebrity sobriety articles. Uh, there's something in there that can spark a conversation to get people telling you how they feel about this, that, or the other thing. So that's one of the reasons I started, because there is no book of group topics. And God knows there's more groups going on now than there was uh, when I started as, as a drug counselor a while ago. Um, but it's also entertaining, very entertaining and sexy. <laughs> For the film festival, did um, I see you have some... Dates in October for California. We were online for two years for obvious reasons or obvious reason. Uh, we'd actually done, been in Vancouver for a few years about eight years ago. We were at, uh, there's a facility up there, awesome treatment facility called Orchard Recovery. On I think it's on Bowen, Bowen Island off of Vancouver and they, they brought us up for a three day festival a couple of years in a row. The mayor of Vancouver was there. It was awesome. We had to go online because of the COVID thing. Uh, we're back in the theater in LA for a week in October. Uh, we might be back in a theater in New York in November. That's still up in the air. Uh, we've been in about a half a dozen cities in the States. Uh, so we're just waiting for our partners to, you know, to uh, get back in and tell. We have 150 submissions a year from all over the world. You know, we are like the clearinghouse for films about mental health issues, behavioral health issues, uh, uh, you know, process addictions, and obviously drinking and drugging. Uh, we get we get a lot of submissions, a lot of shorts, a lot of documentaries. We get a feature every you know once a week, and and we're very particular about what we show. Our main criteria for selecting a film is that it's an honest depiction of whatever subject they're talking about. That they're not uh, exaggerating or minimizing some issue. So it's honest. It's well made. Uh, and it's entertaining. You know, even if it's entertaining in an uncomfortable way, it's it's compelling. You know, I've never seen anybody walk out on one of our films in the theater. And I'm standing in the back because I like watching them more than once because every time I watch it, I see something new or it just, you know, it's, it makes me feel happy or it makes me think, which is what a good film, you know, should do. So to answer your question, yes, a week live in Los Angeles. It's on the website. Um, if anybody out there wants to bring the a three-day version of the Real Recovery Film Festival to Saskatchewan or Toronto would be perfect because it's near Detroit, isn't it? 
but Toronto would be terrific. Uh, and yeah, it's Edmund, really close. Edmonton, they must have film lovers, people who love recovery and going to the movies. And now Absolutely. we can go out again. Leonard, what, um, what kind of influenced you to be a addictions counselor? I couldn't find a job. I was suited for nothing. 23 years or as a drug dealer, the Rolodex was worthless. And it's sort of what people, and I mean this in the kindest, nicest way, it's sort of what people do to myself who can't make it in the real world. They become drug counselors. Because you don't really need a degree, you need a certification in California. Obviously, I'm familiar with the subject, but it's not AA. You don't go into becoming a drug counselor just touting the AA way. There has to be more to it than that. So it was, and, and, and then there's a great line on opening day of orientation. They say, when you become a drug counselor through this program, it was actually a college, Los Angeles Community College. They say, we guarantee you will always have a job. And your wages will be embarrassing. But you'll always have a job. And that was the most important thing to me. And working with others. And I got into a pretty interesting facility and was able to make up my own group topics. As I mentioned, there was very little supervision. And I loved my guys. You know, it was, it's really uh, different. It sort of feels like cheers. When I went to work every day, everybody knew me. And I had never been working in a place with other people. I'd been a solo drug dealer, maybe with a partner. So this was like a community. It was, it was a real community. And, 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 and it felt good to be recognized. And so that's what inspired me, that I really wasn't suited for much else in this life until I discovered putting, you know, producing film festivals. And, and, and I had been an editor and a publisher years ago. I co-wrote and published a book about the, the health benefits of nutritional blue-green algae, you know, spirulina, uh, algae from Klamath Lake in Oregon. So I had some experience as a publisher and an editor. So that's why I started the Addiction Recovery E-Bulletin almost nine years ago. And that's, a, that's, a, that's like a 50 hour a week job. So it uh, keeps me out of my head, which is not a bad place to be for me, because I have a lot of sexual fantasies. <laughs> not while I'm driving. Well, I'm pulled over. I mean, <laughs> off the rails recovery. I hope I'm living up to your uh, name there. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Leonard, I was I was curious, um, you know, how you dealt with any maybe uh, good friends or loved ones that maybe were struggling without, you know, trying to preach how great sobriety is. Did you find yourself, um, did you just have to kind of give them time to figure it out on their own? Or was there any tips you can kind of give someone that maybe uh, that has someone going through something without 
you know, everyone's got to kind of figure it out on their own, but kind of let them see the light of how great sobriety is. Well, you know, by example, uh, I'm very fortunate that the only woman in my world that had been sober when I was still using, and we were, you know, we were friends, we were close, we were good neighbors, so to speak. She went to rehab, I didn't. And she never said anything to me. We stepped, we kept hanging out and she never said anything to me. So when, when I was ready, she was there for me. And if she had tried to badmouth my drug using, I might have resented her, I might not have whatever. So when I started my nonprofit, Writers in Treatment, the, the idea was the most and least you can do for someone who's suffering from addiction or alcoholism is get them into a 28-day facility. Get them away from their friends, get them away from their families, get them away from their substances for a month. Tell them, hey, do it for a month if you don't like it. When I dropped off my son at rehab, you know, I said to him when I was totally serious, I said, if you don't like it, I'll pick you up next week. You know, cause, and he stayed. Obviously, he's lucky. I'm very lucky. My 19-year-old son has 20 years sober now. Uh, I was very lucky. But I said, it's not, it's not a program of coercion. It's a program of attraction. Uh, and friends of mine, uh, I have a friend. Uh, I don't... Uh, I tell him where I go. And... I said to a friend last week, I said, hey, if you ever want to go to a meeting with me, and she had like two years sober five years ago, and then left the program, you know, I'm not uh, taking her inventory, but I think the God thing was a little difficult, and she left, and she works full-time, high-functioning, uh, but lately... I, she has confided in me that the, you know she's day drinking now, and and I said, hey, and I didn't want to alienate her. I said, if you want to meet me at a meeting, that would be terrific, because she knows what they are. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that's good or bad. She knows what they are. No, I don't. I don't preach. I think sobriety is not for everyone. You know, it's it's. I do believe we are as much as I wish I could drink and use drugs moderately, I know I can't because I feel separated from 95% of society who do drink and use drugs and it's not a it's not a big issue. It's just the way they cope. It's a coping mechanism. They enjoy it. You know, why not smoke a joint before a concert? Why not have a couple of drinks before going out dancing or to a hotel for sex, whatever? Uh, but I can't because if I, if I do something that makes me feel good tonight, I'm going to want to feel good tomorrow morning. So there's, you know... The, the 24 hour, it never, it never, that's why it's easy for me to stay sober, I think, 
because I never was a binge drinker or binge user. It was my life every day. And so sobriety is my life every day. One last story, and then I really have to go. Absolutely. Because uh, I, I don't want to get angry, hungry, lonely, or tired. <laughs> and I'm alone, and I'm tired. I'm not angry, but I'm getting hungry. Uh, a very well-known disc jockey in Philadelphia wrote to me and said, uh, I don't like the title of your book, Marijuana, I mean, Cannabis Addict. I said, yeah. He said, I've been smoking pot every day for 52 years, and I can quit whenever I want. It sort of proved my point. If you're, still, if you're in your 50s and you're still smoking pot, you know, think twice. You're not smoking pot to get high. You're smoking pot because of, you're afraid of growing up. You're afraid of becoming a mature adult. And if you have a problem with that, please don't give out my any of my addresses. <laughs> Facebook. Find me on Facebook. My favorite site. Isn't it like 8 billion users? It's amazing. It's yeah. the, it, it, it helps and, and hurts so many people simultaneously. And now in California, parents can sue Meta if their children experience issues based on Instagram or Facebook posts. Really? Yes, because it does create mental illness in, in young people. Okay, we're done. Awesome, guys. High Confessions of a Cannabis Addict is available on Amazon, so please pick it up. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, please reach out and ask for help. Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Dave. Mark. Mark. <laughs> I can't. Hold on. All good. Wait, let me get my glasses. <laughs> These aren't even mine. Okay. Uh... <laughs>